The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. It's a year on now uh, from those extraordinary pictures and stories we had from Cali and uh, the great migrant crisis. In the studio with me is somebody who in that 12 months I've talked to a number of times about the problems of Irish, the Irish haulage, haulage industry, uh, Verona Murphy. Verona, welcome to the programme. Afternoon, John. And then in London for The Guardian is Amelia Gentleman. Amelia, welcome to the programme. Hello. Uh, Verona, if I go to you first, I mean, when we talked, chaos reigned at Calais. Your members, your drivers, uh, didn't know whether there were people sneaking into the back of the truck. If they did and they arrived in, in Britain, the next port, port of call, they faced huge fines or, or their truck being impounded or whatever. A year on was the position. The very same, if not worse. Yesterday we had a member onto us who had his truck seized for non-payment of a fine. He received the letter, the final notice one week ago. And whilst carrying out his duties in London, he had his truck seized. It wasn't the truck that he had been stopped with, with the migrants, another vehicle. And he had to pay a fine in thousands of euros in order to have his truck released or face an insurance liability with late deliveries. Now, when you say it hasn't changed, your members still could possibly open the back of the truck and find somebody in it. But people listening will sort of say, well, can't you lock the truck or can't you have some kind of security when you're parked in the car park at night or whatever? Why? Why? All those things are relevant. We actually do pay for parking and secure parking in about 30, pound, 30 euros a night. There's no such thing as secure parking. You basically still have to check your vehicle uh, every day our members check their vehicles and find migrants. In some instances, they're able to get those migrants out of the truck. In other instances, they will check their locks and check their vehicles and they'll see no interference and they may be only within a short distance from the port, so they will travel on. However, they will discover through the UK border force because the French will not bother and the French are not intervening. So they will find migrants and they face the fines. We've been told by the UK police uh, individually that these migrants now have master locks to the locks that we have paid a significant amount of money for across Europe. We mainly use Spanish locks or Italian locks, but they now have master keys. So the locks don't look like they're interfered with and the migrants, hence, are within the trailer. Now, Amelia, gentleman of The Guardian, is in London. And, Amelia, you and I have talked also in the last year. Now, you you looking at it from, from the... Uh, the humane element of, of all these displaced people in Calais, these awful camps, terrible conditions they, they live under. What's your uh, assessment a year on? Well, I think it's interesting that the attention, uh, certainly in the UK, has turned away a little bit from the situation in Calais. We're not seeing those pictures of large numbers of people rushing along the motorway trying to make their way to um, Britain as we were a year ago. However, um, the population of people living in the camps at Calais 
is higher now than it was a year ago. So it's currently estimated to be over um, 7,000 people living in the um, wasteland um, on the edges of Calais. Um, And that's quite an extraordinary figure given that um, the Calais authorities have on more than one occasion attempted to bulldoze um, large areas of the camp. And yet um, people are coming and um, erecting new bits of um, informal housing. Now, post-Brexit, though, there there must be an attitudinal change, I would have thought. It's interesting Verona saying the French just don't bother anymore, uh, but the British are still very tight on it. Uh, Calais would would have been, I'm sure... uh, a, a, a poster boy is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. It would be a very visible evidence to British people who may well have voted in Brexit over the last 12 months. They would have seen that. They would have seen the idea of migrants rushing down the Channel Tunnel or whatever. And that would have struck maybe quite a chord when they then came to vote. Uh, yes, possibly. Um, certainly in, in the weeks following Calais, there's been discussion of whether or not the French authorities um, want to uh, shift border control so that they no longer are responsible um, for checking um, the the passage of, of um, migrants at the border and containing it. Um, but I, 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 I'm not sure that... Um, well, who who knows whether that was a, a, a factor in in the Brexit sure, vote. but 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 there was a fear factor in the vote, unquestionably the issue of 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 legal migrants from the other twenty seven nations was part of the worries. But that's not what we're here for. We're talking about the specifics of Calais year on. Verona um, Murphy is with me, president of the Irish Road Haulage Association. Now, Verona, the interesting thing. Again, we don't know. No more do we know what the border is going to look like between Northern Ireland and the Republic. But what Emilia is saying seems to be making sense to me, that the French had just said, it's not our problem now. Britain is outside the EU, so they would move the entire sort of border and the border control to the British. But that's not really going to make any difference, is it? I mean, the British are already pretty intense in in terms of their, their coverage. Yes, they have a juxtaposed position in Calais. The problem we have that since Brexit, it seems to be the world of Internet and Facebook and all these things. We have loads of YouTube videos of migrants who are actually saying Brexit has happened. It's now free for all. The French won't stop us. We can get to the UK and we can stay there. We can stay there because... Uh, the the British are no longer part of the EU and therefore they can't remove us to where we first landed in Europe. This is what's going around on the internet and on the Facebook pages of the, that the migrants are accessing. It's very worrying for us and particularly the Lord Mayor of Calais has already said that this is now an English problem, that the English can look after their own borders and with what is happening with terrorism currently in France, all of the the army that were in Calais, they're gone. They've just been removed to other areas and they are now checking passports in different areas of France and carrying out controls. We have no protection. We have a very serious incident two weeks ago on the motorway where the migrants lit two bales of hay or straw. They set them on fire in the middle of the dual carriageway. Two trucks had head-on collision. Thankfully, nobody was killed, but there is hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of damage. 
But this is ongoing, ongoing all the time. We, As I said, we have a member yesterday whose truck was seized because of a fine that wasn't paid. We're getting no government assistance. And by that, I mean support. From I, the Irish government? None. Not from the Irish, from the English, from Pascal the French. Pascal Donoghue or, well, well he's not anymore. Shane Ross. Shane Ross, yeah. None. The other, the other group of people who would say exactly the same are um, the people who are lobbying for the large numbers of unaccompanied child um, migrants or refugees who are still living in Calais. Um, and they, they say, um, perhaps coming from a different perspective, that they are getting no assistance either from the French or from the um, British authorities. And we understand that there are about... Um, 600 or 700 children in Calais of whom about 600 um, are unaccompanied and we had a very very powerful um, Lords Committee report published here yesterday saying um, again that the UK and other EU member states are systematically uh, failing these children who are living in really really dire conditions not only in Calais, but in other informal camps around Europe. And because they're not getting assistance, um, they are still making nightly attempts to get onto lorries at Calais, risking their lives. And, and indeed, we know that um, two, at least two minors have died on the roads between um, Calais and, and the UK Um in the last six months. Yeah, my guest in London is Amelia Gentleman of The Guardian, who you've just been listening to. But, Amelia, there is no end to the horrors of man's inhumanity to man. But but as somebody who's been close to this story now over the last year and longer, uh, the question of children, obviously, uh, is, is even more horrifying and harrowing. But don't you think that what is also happening with now what seem to be atrocities on a near, a near even even more than a weekly basis that that is going to harden attitudes, particularly in the United Kingdom, but in many countries. I think I think um, we have had uh, an an onslaught of um, news reports that um, cast. Uh, some refugees in a bad light. In the autumn, um, when Paris was attacked um, in the nightclubs, there was a suggestion, which later turned out not to be well-founded, that one of the people who'd orchestrated that attack had been a Syrian refugee. There's a lot of... um, uh, There's a a lot of unknowns, I suppose, about the um, people behind the current wave of attacks. But... Yes, you're right. It it doesn't um, it doesn't make people feel well disposed to um, the yeah. hundreds of thousands of refugees through throughout Europe. My two guests are coming from different angles, but but the, they they both look at precisely the same problem, which is seven thousand people in appalling camp conditions at Calais, most of whom are trying to get to Britain. Uh, Amelia has consistently in The Guardian written about the the horrors of that. But at the same time, 
Um, unfortunately, we all survive by filthy commerce, uh, Verona. And if we don't get trucks making deliveries to and from Europe and Ireland, and where we are a member of the European Union, then the economy of the country suffers. And uh, part also from the individual livelihoods of, of people... Your story isn't any different from what it was a year ago. And in fact, because a year has passed and you're not getting any help, your story is actually worse. It's worse, much worse. And I mean, it's it's so frustrating to think that this is because of the border. And that's exactly what the problem is. You don't see it. Although the migrants are displaced all over Europe, they don't congregate other than in Calais because they want to be in the UK. You will see uh, graffiti on the walls of the camps that say London Calling. So this primarily seems to be a UK problem. So whatever it is that's enticing the migrants to the UK needs to be looked at. Unfortunately for us... But I don't think you need to say whatever is enticing the UK. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, when when I went to our, to England in, at 19, uh, you know, uh, the, the UK was still a much better place than Ireland and, and the National Health Service and the social welfare system and all those things to a 19-year-old Irishman were great. Uh, that is multiplied 10 fold for a Syrian. We do need to put this into perspective because, of course, we have um, real um, awareness of what's happening at the border of Calais because that's what affects us closely and and particularly the industry you're you're talking about. However, the situation in Calais, although there are 7,000 people there, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall um, refugee crisis that has seen four million people displaced into um, their countries immediately surrounding Syria. And we should be under no illusions that um, the UK is the number one destination um, that all refugees coming from the um, warm-torn areas are heading towards because it's simply not the case. We have um, seen a a lot of them travelling to Germany and a lot of them have um, claimed asylum in France, in Sweden. We're aware of the situation in Canada, but we shouldn't um, beat ourselves too much up about the pull factor of the UK because actually the pull factor out of Syria and out of those areas is the relative safety of Europe as a whole. Okay, finally Verona, yeah. yeah well, I can't actually sympathise with Amelia or even resonate with what she's speaking about because ideally what's happening in Calais is that air drivers and air members are being harassed with batons, with iron bars, with stones. The damage is, is constant. It, the image for a truck driver now means we have a serious driver shortage and much of it is caused by Calais. Uh, we have drivers who are... When they call the police, the police don't come. We've had drivers hospitalised. Migrants are not being fined. Migrants are not being dealt with any, in any efficient manner. We have it's, it's not just the commerce. It's the actual livelihood. It's the actual protection. What's the difference in a driver who takes his four-year-old Irish child with him on a trip, but he actually puts him in serious danger? We have to advise against what was the norm of taking your child who's on holidays from school on a trip to Europe because daddy or mammy is a truck driver. That can't happen anymore because it's just too danger, dangerous. The consequences can be lethal. And therefore, it's, it's whose life 
or who has the fundamental right here. And I'm not saying that the migrants are the drivers. Nobody's life is more important, but we are carrying out day-to-day jobs and we're getting no support to do it. All right. Uh, This is one I'm afraid will run and run and we don't have time. My thanks to my guest in London, Amelia Gentleman of The Guardian, and of course, Verona Murphy, President of the Irish Road Haulage Association. Thank you both. It's The Right Hook with Giorgio. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie The last time I uh, spoke to this man, my guest, uh, on the programme, he was concerned uh, prior to cage fighting. He is Professor Dan Healy of the Royal College of Surgeons and Neurologist at Beaumont Hospital. Uh, This is what he said to me then. I have no particular issue with consensual adult autonomous behaviour, and it's not illegal. Nothing here is illegal. I want the young men and women, the brave young fighters who are meticulous in the way in which they prepare for this, in their healthy living, in their going to bed at night, not drinking, etc. They're the best of our country, George. I want them to have the same safety standards that a professional boxer would have, and I don't want us to, in MMA or in cage fighting, learn the hard way. Unfortunately, and, and um, we're, we're, we're sub-judice, because there are investigations taking place. Within weeks, somebody died. Um, it, it, we're pretty well a year on, I would think, you and I, from that conversation. Are you more optimistic now or less optimistic than you were then about safety in, first of all, particularly mixed martial arts and, and, and cage fighting? Uh, thank you, George. Much more optimistic Um the death of Xiao Cavalli was a, a Rubicon moment for uh, MMA, I think. Um, it's not that safety wasn't important and at grassroots levels amongst uh, fighters and clubs and, and uh, coaches, there was always a clamour to improve and regulate their sport. They got it because they were in the firing line. The difficulty and what made the task Sophician was that on the one hand, our government and our sports council um, were ambivalent to the sport. That's probably the, the mildest way to put it. And as a consequence, that limbo or abeyance of regulation and responsibility led to a situation where it was commercial promotions and venues that decided what level of safety took place, fight night and subsequently. That has changed. Right. It's interesting you use the word regulation. We don't seem to do it, like whether it's finance or, or whether it's sport. Regulation isn't the strong point, it seems, of the Irish psyche. Now, the... You said to me, I can remember, in fact, it was March. It wasn't quite as long ago as a year ago. It was March. In our discussion also, you talked about professional boxing. And you said professional boxing had, in your opinion, some of the best uh, medical precautionary things going. Isn't it really interesting? I know why they've got the best medical, because two guys are out there trying to beat each other to a pulp. But nevertheless, I think it is really interesting that that sport, whose history started in bare-knuckle boxing a century and a half ago, has learned huge lessons. Yeah, and it learned in a big way from Michael Watson, a fight that I was actually at in the early 90s in White Hart, White Hart Lane. Um, 
There hasn't been a professional MMA fight since the death of Joao Cavalli in Ireland, but there is one in September in the Three Arena. It's going to be a, a big event, the capacity crowd of ten or 15,000 at it. And I'm extremely optimistic that on fight night that night, all of the safety standards that a professional boxer has at his disposable will be present. So uh, fighters are going to be scanned in advance. There's going to be eye tests, ringside. There's going to be every possible provision or aforethought for what would happen if a fighter had a serious head injury and how that would be managed. That's a big change. Yes, but the problem with boxing... MMA and other sports, which you might get into in a minute, mm-hmm. um, is that you can test as much as you like beforehand, but if the sport involves uh, hits to the head, yeah. then sadly the brain doesn't take it quite so well. Yeah, you're right, and that applies in fact to any sport that has the head involved in it. And you know, we saw very sadly yesterday that uh, TJ McNamara, a a race uh, a jockey uh, died again from um, injuries involving his sport. So any sport where the head is involved, you're going to have tragedy. And that's a different argument in some ways. My argument is that we have to have systems in place that ensure that we don't have any avoidable tragedy. And that's the key, that uh, that. Uh, um, that tragedy will always happen in sport. My guest is Professor Dan Haley from the Royal College of Surgeons and of course he's also a neurologist uh, at Beaumont Hospital. But we know an awful lot more now. We saw the movie, for instance, Concussion, about Bennett O'Malley and, and all the American footballers. We saw the American Football Federation in denial uh, for decades, using, interestingly, the same lawyers that tobacco had used in its defence. Um, the, 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 the issue for rugby union, where... If you make another point in the little clip I played from you there, you said, I have no problem with ad- con- consensual adults. But of course, a huge number of our sports, so people in one of them, soccer being another, Gaelic football, are played by children yeah. who so, aren't consensual, really. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, perhaps maybe not for many of the sports you mentioned, but some of them. Um, where the head really is involved in the sport. I think we are inexorably, in my opinion, moving towards these sports maybe going out with a whimper uh, gradually. I don't think they're ever going to be banned, but where we're now, moving... No, I mentioned soccer, rugby and Gaelic yeah. football, and then you said we're moving towards a point where they may no. inexorably... No, I didn't. So I said some of the sports you mentioned, right. and uh, I don't think those sports in particular, but, but there's a number of factors. Firstly... Um, and particular boxing and rugby and perhaps MMA too, certainly MMA too, that medical science is now moving to a phase where the dementia or the the CTE uh, associated with recurrent head trauma will be diagnosable in life rather than at post-mortem, which is currently still the situation. Which is what was the whole story about Ben Romalo, because he was doing post-mortems. And um, and if I could just say, and and secondly, as you say, how you can allow uh, individuals who cannot give adult informed consent to participate in sports where we know there is objective evidence that they're associated with brain trauma and later on potentially cognitive impairment, 
how you can allow that to happen without them being able to give consent. And it is, it's a real worry I have because um, the, the opposite is that we have you know, young people who don't participate in sport and we end up with, OK, very, very safe children, but plump, rotund, sure. sp- you know, who haven't benefited from... Which is by yeah, the sporting bodies. They haven't had team sport involvement. Yeah. They haven't, uh, you know, they get puffed running for a bus. So we have to be careful about that too. Now, it, it, some very interesting figures, because I, I'm very involved in this as a layman. Yeah. For instance, in soccer... A goalkeeper kicks the ball out, so the ball is in the air, and then the defender heads it back. The trauma associated with heading a soccer ball back from a goalkeeper kickout is the equivalent, apparently, of taking two punches in boxing. It doesn't matter. The point is there is major trauma. Also, women's soccer is huge, as is women's rugby. And we know, do we not, that women are more susceptible to brain trauma than men. Is that right or not? Or I don't think not we, sure? we don't really... We, it seems that they're more susceptible to concussion or okay. perhaps they just report concussion better than men. Okay. Um, we don't know that they're more susceptible to what is the real worry, which is the long-term effects of repeated concussions or minor subcussive hits to the brain. And But that is going to change, I think, in the near future where we have technology, scans, spinal fluid analysis, genetic analysis, that we can perhaps pick out people who have developed that while they're well, while they still have fast brains, but where you can see perhaps some subtle signs but, of it. But the, the tragedy, the great World Cup final of 1966, England beating Germany, I think it's four or five of that squad uh, have dementia. I mean, and, and this is again a show where we know now that heading the ball, different kind of ball, we must obviously choose different when it got wet, but from heading the ball. So, um, we don't know that they have chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That's an important point. You know, those are old men now. And Alzheimer's disease is a really common disease that probably in the main isn't associated with recurrent head trauma. Now, that's a big word to use now, yes. CTE. Yeah. What's the difference between CTE and somebody who today was a soccer player 50 years ago ahead of the ball? There's a very well documented case of Jeff Astle, for instance, mm-hmm. a soccer player. What's the difference between that and, and these men who may or may not have Alzheimer's? because they're heading the ball. Well, so CTE is a disease exclusive to people involved in activity, sport or maybe military activities uh, that uh, is associated with recurrent brain trauma. So Alzheimer's disease doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be the case. Some of the proteins that are aggregating and accumulating in neurons are similar, but they are, from a pathologist's point of view, they look quite distinct. The same proteins, but in different parts of the brain. And... Um, uh, in some, so there's some proteins involved, for example, in CT that are not involved in Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease is common. Over 80, maybe 10% or more of the population will have some signs of Alzheimer's disease. CTE is rare, very rare, and thankfully rare. And even amongst individuals, you know, even amongst professional boxers who'd be the highest risk group, uh, about somewhere between one and five and one and six have CTE. So it's oh. it's a disease. It's it's too many for one sure. One in five is a small it, number unless you're D1 in the five. Absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. The, the issue of um, adult consent, mm-hmm. um, clearly children can't do that uh, in any of these sports. So so what's 
the neurologist's answer to it. The sporting body says, and understandably, look, these are going to be fat kids if they don't play or they're not going to understand team spirit and all that sort of thing. So what does the neurologist say about children who make a decision which they can't make an adult consent to? You're the interviewer. I'm going to slightly change the question there a little bit because I want to bring it back a little bit to to MMA. And me as a neurologist in in MMA, um, you know, clearly I've devoted my life to the the divine banquet of the brain and diseases of the brain. But and so, you you know, you're never going to hear me say that brain trauma or even a a single punch to the head is good for the brain. It's clearly not. Um, but you've got to be pragmatic. Uh, we live in a country where combat sports and rugby, are, you're called the right hook. You know, they're integral to the way we, we um, yeah. our society. And uh, so I've taken a pragmatic view. And uh, in MMA, um, I think a neurologist, it's important that a neurologist is involved in trying to raise the agenda of MMA, try to make it mainstream, because I think until MMA is made mainstream until our sporting council recognizes it as a sport until our gov- and they're beginning to do that until our government treats the young men and women who participate in MMA in the same way as they would a boxer for example that until that happens they have none of the protections and none of the responsibilities to uh, to participate in the sport as safely as can be it with the major, major caveat that the sport is dangerous. So so a neurologist, well, I've chosen at least to have a pragmatic view and to try and bring MMA from the sort of badlands as it as is seen right now into mainstream sport. It will be far safer that way. We have a really good organisation now called the Irish MMA Association that um, is working now finally with our sports council, uh, trying to fast track it into into uh, being recognised and protected. And I think we have a government who, who again, finally are... are um, recognising that this sport has exploded in Ireland, that there are okay. hundreds of clubs and thousands of young men and women participating uh, in the sport and it needs to be made safe and mainstream. All right, thank you so much. Can I make one, yeah. other, one, Please, o- one quickly, other point? Quickly. Because um, uh, two weeks ago, the Amateur World MMA uh, uh, Championships took place in America. A huge event, countries all over the world, similar in terms of the right. competitiveness and so on as the World Amateur Boxing Champion. And we had five medalists, a gold medalist, Matthew Sheehan, and uh, other medalists, Owen Drumgould, okay. um, Nathan Kelly, um, Huey O'Rourke, uh, Kean Cowley, and David Fogarty. Now, contrast that to Michael Conlon, who won the World Amateur Boxing Association uh, Championships. Similar in terms of standard and international prestige. Last year, he was made RTE Sportsperson of the Year. He got his medal presented to him by the head of our sports council, John Tracy, who's a man I have great respect for. Michael Conlon was able to participate in his sport, his chosen sport, knowing that the organisation that governed it, the most important thing for them was his safety. And we need the same in MMA. Thank you so much, Dan Healy. Thank you so much for joining me. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie 
Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook. And I'm joined now from Sydney uh, by Father Brendan Purcell. Um, This is, in a way, it's kind of a difficult interview because we're talking about a man you don't know. Nevertheless, he's a colleague of yours because he's he's a priest, according to the Order of Melchizedek. It's Father Jacques Hamel, who was killed while conducting Mass in his church yesterday morning um, by people for whom ISIS has claimed responsibility. He's not the first priest to die for the faith, but he's the first one in Europe in a long time. Wouldn't that be right? I'd say so, but I mean, as you know, if you just move around across the border over to places like Yemen, you know, Afghanistan, any of these places, uh, Syria, there have been lots and lots, priests, sisters, and so on, all in the last few years, nothing new about it. You know, it's and shocking it all, that it's so near. And it also happened in Africa, of course, in the of Congo, course. for instance, and places like that. But but this is Europe, like, this is France. I think, um, I've, I've, I've gone to Mass quite a few times in France, funnily enough, and I, I, the, the thing about French churches is everybody in the audience is very old, and um, there's a a wonderful feeling in them and there's a great sense of safety and everything so therefore to have it abused in this way is is terrifying you've got a new book out uh, published by veritas where is god in suffering where is he with father jacques hamel Brenda well, well one of the things when i was writing the book that kind of hit me stronger than ever was uh, like there's no particular, there's no smart answer, but the only answer Christian ever has is that God himself gets involved in it and he suffers too. And it's not an answer, it's kind of what happened. It's a life, if you like. And in that sense, I think, you know, you've got something very unusual. It's focused on, we don't have an answer, but we do have an experience that God himself, we believe, went right into our world and suffers. And in fact, like that priest, according to the Order of Melchizedek, you say, he himself died and we would always see that as quite centred what, what what the mass is about. So, it's not as if it takes away the terrible, the I would say the demonic and you know diabolical kind of horror of what's involved in that situation. But the reality is that God Himself came in and took that on the chin Himself, and that gives us a kind of. That's why, in fact, if you like Christians, in a sense, we're not shocked by it; we're horrified by it, as every normal human being would be. But it's, if you like, in a way, it's on the menu. It's the sort of thing that we have to be. If we want to yeah. really follow him, we've got to be ready for it. Now, what about Catholics in Australia um, when they read in their newspapers and watched on television about the killing of a priest? How did Australian oh, Catholics react? Oh, it got the same react? coverage as anywhere else. I mean, I think it, it, people... I mean, even to come to a, a guy, you know, that I was very impressed by, he's the guy in charge of the Grand Mosque in uh, Paris, a fellow called uh, Dalil Boubacar, and he said the leaders deeply desire that our place of worship are the subject of greater security. And he says he says he just spoke of it as oh yeah as a as a blasphemous sacrilege. So you know your average you know French Muslim feels the same as you and I do about particularly as you say yourself in a place uh, where you should have the peace, be able to adore your God, that he himself uses the language blasphemous sacrilege. So I think, again, you know, it's a horror for for anyone to feel that we can't safely say our prayers to God uh, where we go, you know? Yeah, but Air France this morning came out and 
said that, you know, there's been a drop in passenger numbers to France, um, which one can understand of tourists. But the thing is that uh, it's what I talked about earlier on. They were going to a church in France. A church in France I found difficult, different, I should say, from churches elsewhere. So people are going to certainly reflect, Brendan. I mean, this is a, one has to say, and I hear what you're saying about uh, the 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 imam at the Grand Mosque in in uh, Paris. But nevertheless, now this is a direct attack on on religion. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I think one of the interesting things, if you can use the word interesting, is the wrong word. But up to now, most of the attacks in the last month or two in Germany and in France have been, inverted commas, random. They've aimed at anyone enjoying anything anywhere. This is actually getting to the core of it. And ISIS, as you know, uh, they really feel that they're still fighting, you know, the battles of a thousand years ago. And they definitely hate Christianity and they hate the Catholic Church in particular because they see us as leading the Crusades, you know, way back in the 13 or 1200s and so on. And that's, you know, in a certain sense, you know, that this wasn't a random attack. That's what makes it different. It was a specific targeted attack on the Catholic Church. As you know, they've aimed, there's a list of Catholic churches they've already said they were going to attack. That was one of them. There was to be an attack in another place called Eve, and it never happened because the guy shot himself in the leg and ended up in hospital and they found the list. But I'm just trying to say, that's very very much part of the ISIS Islamic State are at. In the end of the day, they want to basically take over the world and we're, we're the number one enemies. But what we are reading in France as a result of this, Brendan, you're a long way away, Brendan Purcell, in Sydney, but what we're reading is, you know, that pretty well every French soldier, sailor and, and policeman um, is going to be on the streets of France uh, in the coming months. But, but you can't cover everywhere. It's just not possible. Absolutely, absolutely. We know that. And I think at the end, I mean, it, it kind of it does come down to a clash of civilizations. Uh, you know, there's two, you know, there's one particular view that feels, you know, it came up very clearly with a talk that Pope Bendig ran into lots of trouble for, but utterly wrongly, he gave a talk in Germany in 2006. I said, basically, there's two approaches. One is where you you believe that you can use violence to force your beliefs down other people's throats and another one where you don't. And in other words, it comes down to that. And I would say in the end of the day, who will outlast you know, the people who are prepared to say, look, we're going to follow that guy on the cross, we're going to try and love our enemies, we are not going to be pulled down by them to have hate for them, etc. And that's worked in history. Strangely enough, that particular, if you like, argument has gone on for the last couple of thousand years and I think it won't stop. But we have an answer. And it's that particular answer. All right, but, but on a mundane level, um, on a non-religious level, you're living in Australia, which has one of the strongest approach, uh, strongest approaches uh, to to migrants and immigration of any country in the world. Isn't that so? I mean, very, uh, yeah, and they're protected. And we used to sing about the. Remember the song, "The Sea or oh, the Sea, the Glory Sea, whatever it was, keeping us from England." Australia has the enormous advantage. It's so far away; it's very hard to, to reach. It's not easy. It's the same, a little bit like the U.S. in a certain sense, whereas Europe is attached to everywhere and is much, much easier to get to. But do you get any sense of sort of triumphalism mightn't be the right word, but, but in terms of politicians or whatever, particularly politicians who favoured a strong action uh, in, in keeping borders closed, do you get a sense now they're saying, weren't we right? Do you get that sense at all? I, I, 
I would say, but funny enough, although Australian sportsmen can be an incredible pain in the neck, as you know, as a people, like if you go to their war memorials and that, they don't go for that sort of stuff. And I've seen none of it here. I think we've had our own few bad incidents and we've had our own uh, threats from similar types of people who tried to get to Syria, couldn't get there. So they tried to kill someone here. They killed a policeman a few months ago, you know, absolutely straight out of nowhere just for that reason. So in that sense, I don't think they feel inclined. I think they feel the same as everyone else. We're part of what's going on in Europe. The sufferings that are being done there are sufferings we too were lucky we're spared them in the same level. But we've got similar problems here, which, you know, in the end of the day, even one priest or one policeman uh, effectively hits the whole country. Yeah, um, I presume you're, you're having memorial masses uh, for Father had, Jacques Hamel, are you? Exactly. We had a big one. The, uh, the Archbishop said it at lunchtime. I said one this evening. You've got lots of people coming in. Uh, and so as they heard about it and, you know, even people coming up and praying and saying, I hope you'll be safe, etc., etc. But in the end of the day, like, again, it's not we're not Paris, we're not Germany and so on. But, you know, we pray for everybody. Uh, you know, in the, in the end of the day, as I say, there is an answer. It's a tough answer. And in a certain sense, you might say Europe is being asked to have a look. In a certain sense, the root of the West, I would say, is, you know, very largely Christianity, Christianity, Judaism. That's what makes the West what it is. That's where things like freedom that we take so seriously come from. And you can fight about where democracy came from and everything else. But at the end of the day, this is a direct attack on that source. And in that sense, it's up to us to say, can we go back to that source? Because, as you know, not, not that many French people would identify it in a practical way. They actually, in a normal, even it was interesting to see uh, President Hollande, where he effectively identified being French with that Christian background. And so in that sense, it could be that there's a bit of a wake-up call here that we begin to realize we have values. If we, I mean, people have been saying that about the Islamic attack or the Islamist attacks on the West, that the West has become so watered down and stands for maybe just purely material stuff, that they actually can, in fair to commas, win the battle because they stand for something. And I think if we have a look at what we actually do stand for, which is certainly not violence, uh, we might, it might be a valuable thing for us to recover our roots. All right. Uh, thank you so much. And thanks for all your efforts over the years on the programme. Uh, we've enjoyed having you. And I'm delighted you're still going to be causing trouble on the waves. <laughs> thanks very much. Uh, Father Brendan Purcell from Sydney, Australia. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, uh, Getting milk delivered to your house is something we're all very familiar with. When you're my kind of age, of course, you remember all the way that milk evolved over a period of seven decades. Seven decades ago, the milkman came with what was in effect draft milk, and you went. Out, my mother went out with a jug, and he sort of spooned the milk into a jug, and pasteurized, as it was called, was unknown. I'm joined now by two milkmen. Tom Gaskin Sr., now retired, and Tom Gaskin Jr. Gentlemen, uh, welcome. Thanks, George. Now, I'm going to go to Junior in a minute because we're we're talking about the ultimate involvement of, of, of milk delivery. But you would have started where, Tom? When Who were you working for? TK in Monkstown. Yeah, now TK stands for Tel El Kabir, where there was a famous battle during the Boer War or something. Was that right? right? That's right, yep. Now, this was the Southside Dairy, was it? Yeah, So what what would your sort of patch have been as such? Um, I had to drive to uh, Port Allington every morning for six days a week. Really? Yep. To deliver milk at Port Allington? Port Allington, Ratankin, 
um, Cleese Hill, and then out towards the um, Bournemouth factories. All right. Now, the thing about at this point, what what years are we talking about here? Uh, 1964. All right. Let's talk about the 60s here. 60s Dublin, we might have had six dairies, mightn't we? We would have had Merville Dublin Dairy, Hughes Brothers, TK. In fact, when you think about it commercially, my road, there might have been five milkmen going down the road. Isn't that right? That's true. It's extraordinary way yeah. to think about it. Well, I, I didn't know one before the 60s because I was, always, I was in the UK for eight years right. in, in the Navy. All right, OK. So when I come home, I got a job. Now, we have all these um, dairies going on. The horse is gone. Has, yeah. has it? The no, horse no. is gone. <laughs> OK. Uh, now, you're, you're, we're, we're delivering milk with all these dairies. And astonishingly, it seems strange that you could have five milkmen going down the road and me in number 52 is getting it from Merville and uh, Mr. Walsh next to me in 51 is getting it from TEK. It didn't make economic sense. No, no. So eventually, of course, they merged. But tell me about the early mornings. Like, milk delivery is an early morning business. Yeah, I used to up at half two every morning. Right. And I'd start by driving back to Monkstown, do my uh, load up and get the, the milk down on the van and drive to Kildare every morning for six days. Right. Okay. Well, I'm glad it wasn't a horse. I'm glad the horse <laughs> was gone. Now, Tom Jr., you Hi, followed Dad into the milk business, but now you've brought milk delivery to a different level. What are you doing now? Now we provide a, an online service, George, which is called mymilkman.ie, where people can order their milk online, pay online, but they have a choice to pay cash or online. So it's completely changed since my dad's day. And But you still deliver, uh, like the old milkman, do you? Yes, I do, yeah. yeah. Okay, and is it regional? I mean, we talked about Tel El Kabir, TEK, primarily a Southside dairy, mm-hmm. Um but, but, and Merville Dairies, for instance, was in Finglas. Are you delivering across the city? No, well, I collect my milk in Font Hill, okay. Valley there, and I come back on my round is around Monkstown. Um, oh, you're Morgan. back on the old patch around I'm back on the old patch around my dad. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Now, um, is it, uh, Dad got up at half past two. Mm-hmm. Is it an early start for you? It is indeed. It's half one for me to get over, load up and back. And you make your first delivery at what time? Around 3, 3 a.m. Because you're leaving it outside the door, of course, yeah. 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 Now, um, and, and what time are you finished? I mean, are you delivering for four, five, six hours? What yeah, I'm finished around 9 a.m. Okay. What's the benefit of mymilkman.ie as opposed to the conventional milkman who comes to your door? Well, mymilkman.ie takes the traditional service and makes it easier to harness the power of today's technology. So you can pause, change, and edit your order. So it makes it easier for the customer. And for myself. I think that's part of the problem with milk deliveries more mm. than anything else. I mean, um, I'm just going back to your dad for a mm. minute. I mean, Tom Senior, when you were delivering milk, the bread man was also delivering uh, bread. Yeah. Like there was a huge amount of stuff that was delivered to your door. Yeah. Now, by and large, that's all gone to a, a huge yeah. degree because people are going to the supermarket for all those items. Even before I went um, away at 16, I worked in Johnson Moons on the horse and car. With bread? With bread. Out oh. in Ratgar. 
All right. Okay. So the thing is, you go on holiday, right? Or um, you take a couple of days, you're not at home, and you come back, but the milk is still there. Because with the best will in the world, like you think, I'm going away for a couple of days, wonder you forget to do it when you mm-hmm. go on holiday or whatever. And then the milk piles up. Yeah. Two things happen here. One, the milk is wasted. And it's like a, it's like a signpost for, for criminals that there's nobody yeah, 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 at yeah. home. Um, you could actually arrive on your holiday destination 5,000 miles away and say, oh, shoot, I forgot to cancel the milk. Mm-hmm. And you could cancel mymilkman.ie there and there. Yeah. On your app and just pause your order and I'll get All an right. email straight away. Um, is this a one-man business as it stands? No, no, no. There's a 350 milkmen in Ireland. On mymilkman.ie? Yeah, uh, there's about 150 online at the moment and it's grown all the time. Um in the last two years, there's 25 new milkmen. So it's a business on the rise. And what about people? Given, and talking to your dad there about, we, we assumed bread and milk and various things were delivered every day. And now um, people tend to go to supermarkets for mm. milk and bread and all these kind of things are available. Do people still like having it delivered to their door? Yes, they do. Yeah, I've uh, 450 customers odd and I've, 191 of them online and most of them have stuck with me from my dad's time so really yeah yeah back yeah. since then yeah families have grown up and their children are getting milk off me so and the milk is uh in conventional uh packaging presumably yeah yeah, yeah it is all I right have a little goodie bag here for you george oh great and we're on the side of the 50 year Right now, they, of course, there's no bottles anymore either. No I'm bottles anymore. I'm really no. old now, Tom, about no. bottles. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure, but like, if my my grandsons are listening, they're saying you can't possibly get milk in a bottle. You know, <laughs> it will be unheard of. Um, but presumably, everything else you do. I mean, you do cream and low fat cream. and all this kind there's of stuff. Abmore super milk. There's. What about things like a lot of things which the milk, the old milkman certainly used to do? He he delivered eggs and That's right. mm-hmm. so we still, still do that. Yeah. I still do eggs, cream, yogurts, butter, really, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. yeah, and then you can change all that online. Absolutely, yeah. You just go online onto your app. And you can change your order. Now, Tom Senior, is this a complete mystery oh, to you? <laughs> all this, all this I stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was when I was delivering milk to Kildare, all I had was fresh milk, and um, Jersey milk. That's all. Yeah. You know, now so it's much, all completely so many options And all in bottles. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Almost all bottles, yeah. Yeah, because the other problem with the bottles, I mean, for, listen, Tom Jr., forgive myself and your father reminiscing here, <laughs> but like you have to be very careful as the customer, right? Because there was a tinfoil top to the milk, obviously, mm-hmm. and then the birds Bloody would birds, go yeah. for the cream. Do you yeah, remember? Yeah. Now, another thing about the, 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 the tops from the milk, when I drove down, you were in an open back lorry. Yeah? If it was a cold morning, the cream used to rise and knock the cap off. No, <laughs> did it? <laughs> <laughs> exploding milk. I never, that's a new one now. I hadn't heard of exploring, exploding milk before. But the other thing, um, when you were living in an apartment, uh, Tom Jr., my guest remember Tom Gaskin, senior Tom Gaskin Jr., who between them have about 100 years of milk delivery. Um, the, the other thing was if like you were in an apartment, right, there, there would invariably be a rat 
now because everybody having cornflakes like mm-hmm. he's rushing to work like or whatever so you just have cornflakes but the first fella to the bottle is he got the cream <laughs> and to be roused in the apartments it's very hard like it's very hard for people to understand now the, the delivery and as I said as a child there was no pasteurization. The fellow no. came literally with a churn. That's right. Yeah. He had he had a, a a kind of not a spoon, whatever you call it, a ladle. Like a, a ladle, ladle the yeah. very word. Yeah. He ladled he ladled milk into the jug for my mother. Yeah. Yeah. You know, quite extraordinary. Um Well the times we moved on now, George, we have all protein milk, we have all sorts of flavoured milk. Flavored, flavored milk. No, no, goes no, down no, great no. with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was visiting my son in Cork last week, and he made the mistake. He bought coffee, but by mistake, he bought hazelnut coffee. <laughs> so uh, George Junior and George Senior really didn't. We didn't like hazelnut coffee, so yeah. I don't think we go for hazelnut milk either. <laughs> but uh, the great advantage here, it seems to me, this is an absolutely traditional mm-hmm. service. Yeah. That has adapted. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, essentially yeah, yeah. what it is, mm-hmm. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, going to collect it on a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday to collect your money. Now he can do it in two days. I can yeah. do it. because because that that really is because at three in the morning you can't collect your money no. because no. everybody's asleep. Yeah. 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 Uh, so what you have to do. Tom Jr., and you'll remember well, Tom Sr., is that you now had to come back the exact same route at, say, 5 o'clock in the evening or whatever. Yeah. Then people weren't in. Yeah. So now you had a double run or they were, there was a bill uh, that was building up because yeah. you hadn't got people. Um, but now we're paying online. Your bill doesn't build up. It's paid every week. Paid every week if you sign up. Online. But you did say cash, so you still are offering the oh, yeah, service still offering that you take cash, cash as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not everybody has a bank account. And not everybody no, has no, a right, uh, it, Well, this is it's really interesting, Tom. Um, senior, forgive me, but it's the only way I can differentiate because you're both Tom Gaskin. <laughs> I mean, there is an assumption, Tom, I think, that everybody is computer literate and mm-hmm. that everybody has the internet and everybody has a bank account and everybody has whatever it happens to be. Which is, I'm sure for you now, Junior, running a business, there's a huge number of people just don't have that sort of facility. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I'm still delivering to old people as well and there's no... Collecting pensions for old people. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the trust that comes from... No. Really? You yeah. collect their pensions? Collect their pensions yeah. before? Yeah. You're drop, kidding me. I drop no. people home from the pub. <laughs> That's true. What a service. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you. Yeah. MyMilkman.ie, get your pension here or come home from the pub. Listen, it's a wonderful story. It's a great story of, of uh, milk deliveries that started in 1964, yeah? Yeah. All right? 52 years ago. And uh, now the the great tradition carried on of milk coming to our door. Still a great thrill for me, I must say, to to go out in the morning and the milk is there. uh, And it's the only way to buy your milk, really. MyMilkman.ie. Tom Gaskin, senior and junior, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, George. Thank you.